Hey folks, and welcome to the Deconstructor Fun Podcast. Your host today, Michigan Katkoff, and the topic of the day is the evolution of Israel's gaming ecosystem. As guests, we have none other than Giga Levy Weiss, founding partner of NFX, early investor into Playroom, Playtica, among numerous other startups. And we are going to focus on, on Israel's gaming ecosystem because it's known for massive gaming sector. Playtica, Monactive, Plarium, Crazy Labs, Iron Source, AppsFlyer, Fiber, just to mention a few of these amazing companies that are growing quarter over quarter, day over day. And what makes Tel Aviv very interesting is that the city did not have a booming gaming sector or any kind of gaming sector 20 years ago, unlike many other cities such as Barcelona, London, San Francisco, LA, Helsinki. So it kind of came out of nowhere to being what it is today. And in this podcast, we're going to naturally make a lot of comparisons between Helsinki, since that's very familiar to me, as well as San Francisco and Tel Aviv. So all great cities for, for making games. And I think this is an awesome podcast for, for you guys to listen, because no matter where you're coming from, there's a lot of learnings on how to foster this sort of a crea- creative, data-driven, just amazing gaming sector in your city. So hope you enjoy this podcast. I truly enjoyed recording it. And as always, without further ado, shout out to our amazing sponsors. I think what's what's become clearer, certainly in the last few years, as competition in the game industry has really stepped up, is that there's a fundamental difference between a great game and a great game business. You know, you could be super lucky. You, your game is an instant hit. It's resonating with users. But for when that's not the case, uh, or even when you just want to take your game growth to the next level, that's where we come in. So we've developed a really incredible platform that's designed to make you as powerful and as capable as possible in growing your game, whether that's growing your game revenue or growing your user base. That was Melissa Zellow from IronSource, arguably the best growth platform for games on mobile. We all know it. Mobile marketing is going through a paradigm shift. With the industry moving towards a more aggregate way of measuring marketing efforts, Marketers' ability to measure and understand the impact of their marketing investments is further curtailed. AppsFlyer, though, is not sitting on the sidelines. The company has set a goal to help their customers and the entire mobile ecosystem to successfully navigate the new era of mobile marketing. And that's where AppsFlyer's latest product, the incrementality solution, comes to play. It's a product that truly empowers marketers to gain a better understanding of the real value that their marketing efforts hold. AppsFlyer's incrementality solution is built around remarketing. It simplifies the process of designing, executing, and analyzing incremental lift tests at scale, which previously was something that only the biggest players on the market were able to do. With with incrementality, marketers can focus on the end goal of their test without actually having to worry about the heavy lifting that comes with it. To learn more about incrementality and to read the success stories from publishers like Kabam, I suggest you head out to appsflyers.com. Welcome to the Deconstructive Podcast, Gigi. This is your actually your second time. We just did an episode with you, Christian and Travis Boatman. And that was a fantastic discussion on how to scale a company. So if the guys haven't listened to it, really suggest going back to it. And as an introduction of you, it's you're a founding partner of NFX, basically a leading Israeli and Silicon Valley VC fund, and also early investors in 
multiple different things, but for our type of audience, so that they understand Playroom and Playtica are, are among the startups you have invested early on. And actually, I believe you founded Playtica, if I'm correct. I was one of the three co-founders of uh, Playtica. Uh, I was the chairman. I didn't really work in the company full-time, but I was the chairman and I, uh, I was one of the first investors in Plarium. I was uh, the first or one of the first investors in Moon Active. Um, and then in a, probably another 15 games companies, um, rising, you know, rising tide and, um, um, and, you know, uh, space ape and wow. a bunch of others. So, you know, it was, a, it was a good run, amazing founders that I worked with. Yep. So, so when we were talking today about the evolution of Israeli gaming ecosystem, I don't think there's anybody better to talk about this. And thank you. The, the kind of the start that I wanted to, like when I wanted to kick off is, basically talking about how the gaming sector got started because Israel has always been a very big hub for tech startups. You know, people might not know, but companies like Monday, Wix, Fiverr, Waze, just to mention a few of these sort of a consumer focused startups, not to even mention all the B2B tech startups. Yep. And the area has not really been known before for massive gaming sector. But now you have, as you mentioned, Playtica, Moon Active, Playroom, Crazy Labs has been absolutely on a crazy tear. Um, Iron Source IPOing for, I believe, eight billion. AppSly yep. is there, Fiber is there. So the whole ecosystem is, is really booming. And now we're seeing these massive, massive corporations actually coming out of, out of well, not coming, but evolving out of, out of Israel. So how did, how did like, what, what was the change and how this happened? Yep. So I think that um, in a way I was uh, lucky enough uh, to be part of that change. And you know, we, we, I'll talk about it in a second, but historically the Israeli high tech, uh, which started in the eighties of the 20th century uh, was mostly around the telecom and deep B2B kind of deep tech, the things that came out of the military um, and all the large companies that grew there were uh, all you know, dealing with sophisticated, deep technology and almost not touching consumer. The first consumer successful startup out of Israel um, was ICQ, which was uh, the first messenger, the first me mega messenger uh, over desktop, you know, could have been WhatsApp today, but got sold to AOL uh, for, I think, kind of $400 million with phenomenal founders. And, um, and that started the move toward, uh, toward B2C. Uh, and as you mentioned, over the years, we've had like a crazy move uh, to B2C, where now half the startups, if not more in Israel, are B2C companies, and some of them are kind of household names like Waze and Movit and, and, uh, and a bunch of others. Now, I think the, what, there's another part of Israeli high tech that people don't really know, which is sort of the precursor to the Israeli gaming ecosystem, uh, which is that Israel had two additional sectors, consumer sectors, uh, that became very large and very profitable. Uh, although maybe a little bit in the shadows. The first one is the online gambling market. And, uh, you know, we can talk about that later, but Israel basically was the home of two of the most uh, significant online gambling companies in the world. One of them is 888, an operator, and the other one is a company called Playtech, which is a software provider in the field. Um, and, uh, and the other one is the area of edtech. And when I talk about edtech, I don't talk just about companies like Kenshu that I invested in, which are platforms, but I'm talking about consumer-facing edtech or what was called in the, in the past, the, uh, the toolbar world, uh, where basically uh, leveraging extensions and toolbars uh, to distribute search for Google and for others and to make money uh, by acquiring many customers, consumers, and basically selling their data or access to their search 
uh, to Google and others. And these two industries that are, you know, they were never at the, at the top of, uh, of international high tech. They were not really fancy industries, but each one of those is a multi-billion dollar industry, um, still are. And uh, I basically moved into B2C uh, around 2006 from a deep tech background and, and founding tech companies. Uh, I was offered to run 888, which is this large online gaming company traded today in, uh, in London. And, uh, you know, we can talk about the online gambling market, but in, in essence, I came in and what became very apparent to me is that um, as a gamer, as somebody that played games ever since I was a kid, uh, that it is very strange that we have all these capabilities in Israel. You know, we do game design, we do analytics, we do marketing, we do distribution, we do monetization, we do all these things. Basically, in both of these industries, in online gambling and also in the toolbar world was a bit of that on, you know, in terms of acquiring customers and optimizing and monetizing. And still, there's nobody building games. And so I started looking at it. Um, I think that at the time, there were only uh, one or two Israeli games companies. Uh, we bought one into 888 in attempts to grow the company away from just online gambling into also games. Um, and I started investing in companies in the field. And, uh, and then one of these companies uh, uh, was basically uh, uh, Platica, which was two founders that I knew from before. One of them actually worked in 888 many years ago. And uh, another one that I knew from another company that dealt in mobile games. And we basically created Playtica together, not actually in, in, not in attempt to build what Playtica is today, uh, but in attempt to create uh, games over social networks that are not Facebook, over secondary social networks. That's a long story. And then from Playtica, around Playtica started growing more and more and more companies. Um, and what happens in each one of the ecosystems that you'll see is that you see that whenever there is a large company that's being established, people start thinking it's, it creates a hot center of something. And people start there. There are people that work in the company and go out and start companies. There are other people that never thought about games, but suddenly they see that there's all this money that's going into this company or that's coming out of this company. And so they suddenly start thinking about games. There are more and more people that are educated about it. And that's how the ecosystem started. So basically I think from the, uh, the beginning of the crazy success of Playtica, which is kind of, you know, we, we founded Playtica in, whatever, 2007 or eight, can't remember. And we sold it a year later. It was a crazy, crazy deal. And uh, um, clearly a stupid deal as well, because it was, you know, today it's, uh, it's worth, I don't even want to say how many X, what we sold it for, but let's say that it's a hundred X. And, um, uh, but around this, around Platica and its success started growing this entire crazy ecosystem that is today probably Together with uh, with Helsinki, probably the you know the hottest games ecosystem in the world. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree. And and this is so you you touched upon on, on interesting things. And and I like doing the comparison between Helsinki because Israel and, and Finland are almost the same size of a countries uh, in terms of population. Israel actually uh, seven million, if I'm correct. Uh, we're nine. Wow. Okay. Well, it was seven when I last visited. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> We're growing fast. We're no, no. I was I was there last year, but <laughs> but, no, no. but but um no no. But like okay, so Israel is almost twice as big, but the ecosystems are are very strong. And and one of the things that back when I was in business school, um, I'm not going to say how many years ago that was. There was this um, there was always comparison between Finland's tech 
ecosystem and Israel's because Israel was producing a lot of new startups and they were selling really, really fast and founders were exiting, but they were coming up with new stuff. And then Finland was kind of dominated by this one big thing, like you mentioned, Playtika, but we had Nokia and Nokia was kind of dominating everything and Finns were going to work there, but we didn't have as strong of, um, of a culture of starting new companies. I don't know why, maybe there's no VCs and so forth. And I remember a lot of people from Israel were coming over and they were kind of looking at like, we need to build our Nokia. But now, <laughs> yeah. and like, why are we selling so fast? Why are we not growing? And then kind of looking like, okay, 20 years passed since that moment. What I'm kind of seeing is like, now you have these ginormous billion dollar companies, maybe not the size of a Nokia, but definitely large, large companies that are not being sold at the first turn of the yeah. event. Like what was, what was the catalyst for that? I think that it's a great question because uh, for many years there was this uh, kind of self-criticism that we're selling too early and that, uh, you know, and, and I think that to start with, um, we need to understand, and that, that's not really the case in the game industry because in the game industry, you can scale crazily fast as a, stand, as a standalone company, right? You know, the minute that your payback starts being good, um, you don't need that much money to continue scaling and scaling and scaling because the, the money just comes back. Uh, what happens in other industries is that if you're, let's say that you're building a, whatever, a new route, you know, a new routing system and uh, uh, for telecom, and let's say that you're getting to uh, $10 million revenues, and let's say that Cisco is looking at your product and they know that on their channel, this is selling a billion dollar without, and we don't change. And so they're coming and they're offering you the price that would represent you selling for $100 million. And, you know, so let's say they offer you half a billion for your company. And the board comes to the CEO and says, okay, so, you know, what do you say? Should we sell or not? And the CEO says, uh, I believe I can build a huge company. And they say, okay, great. But, uh, you know, uh, this price is the price we would get when we would have $100 million revenues in the market. They're offering this price now. How sure are you that we're going to get to $100 million? And the, CEO, the poor CEO says, well, you know, I still need to recruit my head of sales, my CFO, my head of marketing, my this, my that, my... And, and then everybody looks and says, okay, so we're basically going to work for four or five years and potentially end up more or less at the same place with a lot of risk on the way. And so, first of all, we shouldn't blame uh, companies that are sold uh, when there's a clear distribution advantage to the larger company. As I said before, in games, it does not exist because even if EA buys your game, yeah, they have a bit of databases, but it's nothing. At the end of the day, they're going to have to spend money on marketing it. And so, you know, in the past, again, when it was physical distribution to stores in games, then the big guys had a huge advantage because, you know, how could I as an indie developer get to the stores of every game, PC games uh, uh, store in the world? I can't, EA can. So that was an advantage. But today, you know, my CMO in the tiny company and the CMO of EA basically spend money at the same place in Facebook or, you know, or other platforms. And so, um, so first thing for, in some domains, it is much, clearer why people are selling early. That's one thing. The second thing is that usually when you look at these risks, uh, there, there are some things that are very difficult to factor in. For example, how many uh, experienced executives do you have in the country that you can recruit that are going to help you get there? So you need to have a head of sale, but if in your country you can only get a head of sale that sold you know, 15 or $20 million a year, and nobody that sold half a billion, how can you believe that you're going to get to half a billion if you don't have experienced marketing people? And so as the industry evolves, and as you're seeing more and more and more examples of successes, and as there are more executives coming from these examples of successes, 
you're getting to the point where many of these general risks are being diminished. And so the first thing is that as we had companies grow, you know, many of them fell through and sold, but as we had more companies grow, there are more people that believe they can, there are more people that have the capabilities. And so the risks are lower, that's one thing. The second thing that happened is that Israel started uh, attracting a lot of growth capital, a lot more growth capital than I think any other ecosystem other than, than the United States. And it's much easier to decide to continue running forward if you can basically take 100 million into your company and know that the chances of you not succeeding uh, are smaller because you've got the capital. More than that, I think that the international growth investors, a lot more than the Israeli ones, were always open um, to basically seeing some secondary taken out. And so when you say, okay, I, you know, I, I have a company that's worth a few hundred million dollars, but that's on paper, and I still have a mortgage on my home, uh, and somebody's coming and offering me to sell the company, you know, maybe I should sell it as a responsible thing for my kids and for everything else. Uh, now, you know, the investors are coming in and saying, I'm going to put $100 million, but, you know, 10, 15 million out of it can be secondary for the founders and for the top employees that have been around for a long time. And so that is also the evolution of the ecosystem that allows this. And then the last thing is that we're having more and more and more of these companies led by second and third time founders. So when you look at a company like Monday, these are not first time founders. When you look at companies like Weeks, these are not first time founders, meaning that these are people that A, already believe that they can grow companies, but also usually have some home capital that allow them to take more risks. So the combination of more examples of large companies that are guiding you to want that and to believe it's capable, more people coming out of these large companies with experience in your ecosystem. So you're not afraid that you can't find the right CMO or you can't find the right head of sales or whatever. Um, more second and third time founders and more growth capital. These are the things, the four components that allowed Israel, we call it, uh, we call the last kind of 10 years, Israel's evolution from startup nation to scale up nation. Mm. That's how we like calling it. Uh, and luckily I think that the new companies that grew here are not Nokia's. You know, they're usually primarily digital, uh, geographically independent, incredibly strong global, uh, you know, globally challenging companies that that are basically going to be much stronger, I think, than a single company in a specific field. Yeah. And so oh, yeah. we're very happy with the evolution of the ecosystem here. Yeah, that's that's really interesting, kind of taking back like maybe 20 years of, of progress and, and what led here. Uh, so one thing that he mentioned was talent and, and especially, well, in pretty much every tech, people are the, the key resource that, that makes you succeed. So how... You know, Israel probably has the most tech talent per square mile in any other country in the world. Uh, it's a well, it's a relatively small size of a country, yeah. so so yeah. that also helps. But um, but but um, the population is still relatively small compared to all the tech companies and all the companies that exist in Israel that are scaling up in this in the scale up nation. Yep. So how do Israeli companies scale up effectively when there is such a competition where you have so many? amazing startups that are not even startups anymore that are basically IPOing like like Playtika yeah. and that are yep. just on a crazy growth spur like what what how do you manage talent in there so so it's actually a lot worse than this because one more thing that Israel has that almost no other other country in the world has which has been so critical to Israel's growth uh high tech growth is that we have here also uh, uh, more than 200 international development centers 
uh, of companies like uh, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, uh, Amazon, uh, and everybody else. The, the outcome is that uh, not only do we compete on, for talent between the startups, but we also compete against Amazon that have an AI research center here or Microsoft that has a thousand people here doing R&D, like the largest. I think that for Microsoft and for Google, for sure, this is the largest uh, R&D center outside of the United States and, and a very important one for both of them. They're like key products, not niche products. Um, and so we're fighting here between the startups and we're fighting uh, between the startups and the large companies. And, and so basically a few things have happened. The first thing is that I'll start from the end. The situation is not easy. So it's, I, I don't have a good answer to this because many of my companies are struggling to recruit top talent. Um, and this is just what I hear all across. And so, yes, this is an issue. That's one thing. Um, in this, there's a bunch of things that we're doing. The first thing is that uh, there's constantly a push to continue uh, getting kids to study uh, you know, science in general, science, STEM in, in school, and then uh, computer science in university. And the numbers are growing, although not growing fast enough. That's one thing. The second thing is that there is a big government push uh, with a lot of grants and stuff to help people convert to the right jobs. And so this is not about taking a, a window washer and turning them into a software architect, but this is about taking um, an electrical engineer and helping them get into the software business because there's less demand right now. Well, maybe electrical engineers in the chip industry, but you know, a, a civil engineer or any other type of engineer or somebody that has the capability and, and move them into the Israeli tech. And there's lots of schools and lots of programs here that are doing this. That's the second thing. The third thing is that there are a bunch of programs, some of which I'm, I'm really involved in and, uh, and have been involved from the beginning, where we're taking the parts of the Israeli population that are traditionally less involved in high tech, uh, namely the ultra-Orthodox uh, populations. We have more than, uh, than a million ultra-Orthodox uh, people in Israel that generally do not even study uh, math and definitely not computer science in school. Uh, and they live a more religious uh, type of life. Uh, and we basically created programs for them uh, to start studying tech at the school level. Uh, and this is a huge change. We already have today uh, thousands of new uh, ultra-Orthodox uh, Jews that are entering the job market. There, many of them, you know, some of them are also top, top, top engineers, but many of them are, have studied, uh, you know, web design or, or website building or, but, you know, the industry needs, all, or, or QA, but the industry needs all of that. So, and we're growing this exponentially. So that's another area where we're growing from. Same thing with the Israeli Arab population. So the Israeli Arab population are what's called Palestinian citizens of Israel. And they also traditionally were not a big part of the ecosystem and, and we're pushing hard to give them an equal chance and, you know, give them uh, programs to learn and help them being placed into uh, top tech companies. And that's growing uh, exponentially as well. Yeah. Uh, and having said all that, many Israeli companies at a certain point will make the move that we don't necessarily like, but is a must many times of taking and splitting the core sophisticated ta tech tasks and keeping them in Israel. And then when you need tech extensions, when you need more work on uh, you know, tech art or when you need more work on other things, you'd see many of these companies have offices in Eastern Europe uh, or in India, mostly in Eastern Europe because there's a big advantage in Israel because there's lots of people that speak Russian because of the, of the big uh, wave of Russian immigration into Israel in the 90s. 
And so you'd see all these companies we spoke about, uh, Platica, Plarium, Moon Active, uh, all of them would have centers in Eastern Europe. Uh, and these centers would, you know, depending differs between the companies, but these centers uh, would basically enhance some of the core work that's being done in Israel. Yeah. And, and one of the things that, that, so this is just my own experience. I mean, I've, I've for the listeners to know, I've had family in Israel for a long time and I've been visiting many times. So it, it's not new to me, but when I went there last year with my wife, she's a, she's a fan. She, her perception of Israel was very different than what the reality was. And then when she arrived to Tel Aviv, she, she was kind of surprised that this is a, this is a normal beach city with very great restaurant scene, with great bars. And it's not a normal beach city. It's the best beach city in the world. What do you mean? With, without COVID, we have, the, we have the best weather, the best food, the best looking people, well, the best well, parties, I, the best DJs. For sure. I would say Miami has, a, has something to offer as well. But, but anyway, like she was, she was extremely surprised. And, and that's not something, and, and it allowed me kind of to see from, from somebody else's perspective of what they consider Israel being. And yep. does that affect specialists not moving to Israel because their perception might be something totally different. I, I don't know what she was thinking about, but she's like a, a blonde lady and she thought it would be like a total, like the most Middle Eastern stereotype you can find. And she yeah, like, kind of thought that she was, she how, was traveling how, there. How come, how come when I go into Uber, there's not an, a camel option? I, I've seen that before. It, yeah, it, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and she was kind of like, and I was like, don't worry, there's a lot of diversity there like you won't stand yeah. out at all so look i think that um you know israel is very very unique in many things and clearly you know we're not going to go into geopolitical stuff i think in, in this podcast but clearly not a simple place uh, however uh it's been now a few years that we finally it took us years to do that but we finally convinced the government that there needs to be uh, an expert visa for people that want to come and spend time in Israel. And it's kind of funny because for years, uh, the government didn't do anything about it because the, the assumption was that nobody would ever want to come. Why would anybody want to come to the Middle East, uh, you know, they're, they're from their home country? And now we have these visas and there are thousands of people that are coming here. You know, at the beginning, maybe it was more uh, Jewish people that had relatives, but now it's all across uh, and people are coming and spending a year or two here. It's clearly very far from home for many people. So, you know, it's not as simple as living in New York and moving to the Valley. Uh, it is farther, but we are seeing a growing trend that clearly now COVID stopped a little bit. We're, we have seen a growing trend of an international experts that are looking at the top companies here and are saying, wow, if I can get a job in one of these companies, I would love moving over. Good weather, good food, great ecosystem. And it's, it's kind of, you know, it's funny, you mentioned Miami and uh, many people mention Miami in regards to Tel Aviv. The only thing is that if you want to be in the tech ecosystem, going to Miami is like death. There's nothing, right? So basically, Tel Aviv is this very unique place where you, you can really do what we Israelis love doing most, which is work hard in the morning and play hard at night, right? So we have the best startups, but we also have the best parties. Yeah, that's... Uh, and, and that's kind of unique with good weather, with nice people. Um, everybody's welcome. All right. <laughs> so enough with the ads let's not tell everybody how awesome the city is i still like the hotel prices are high as but it, it is, is already. but it is but it is <laughs> um so let's talk a little bit about the uh the characteristics of the uh the, the ecosystem the gaming ecosystem of israel so i will compare it a little bit not compare but i will give a, a little bit notion of what the ecosystem is like in helsinki 
and it is very um, collaborative. It's 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 hard even to imagine that it would be a rival in the sense that people do share a lot of information, um, trying to help each other. Even the companies who have already sold to to you know to bigger companies, you still can meet up with almost anybody. You can discuss things. They will share very actionable insights in what you should be looking at and what you should be doing because everybody's kind of trying to help each other. Uh, and and in that sense, I've worked both here and I worked both in Bay Area. And I ha do have to say in Bay Area, it's, it is competitive. It's not even rival, it's just straight up competitive. You can't talk to anybody. And I do have to say that this collaborative environment is quite quite nice. It seems like there's more knowledge and it's very easy to, to get. How is it like in Israel? Like, is it rival? Is it competitive? Is it collaborative? It, it's a good question. And I think that we're probably somewhere in the middle. I think that in general, we're a lot more collaborative than the competitive nature of Silicon Valley uh, or New York. and. Uh, we definitely see companies sharing information, especially if they're not directly competing. Uh, and then I think that the, the very large companies, the ones that are, <clears throat> that are very successful and are you know, continuing on their growth trajectory, in general, they are a lot more sensitive to their secretive information. They're a lot more sensitive to, uh, to sharing. They're a lot more sensitive to their trade secrets, if you wish. And so I don't think you'd see uh, you know, sessions where uh, where the large, you know, billion dollar companies uh, or multi-billion dollar companies in Israel meet startups to help them. You know, they would meet them to see if they want to invest. They would meet yeah. them to see if they, uh, if they want to publish the game. They would meet them for that. Um, but they were very, it would be very rare, uh, I think, to see them uh, really openly uh, give them advice unless it's completely non-competitive. So, you know, I, I think that, you know, Platica, if somebody came with a AAA idea, Playtica would share whatever they know, but it, you know, it's directly not competing. Yeah. But if somebody came with something that is even close, and Playtica today is a, you know, it touches almost any genre in, in mobile, um, I think that it, you know, it, it would be tough to get a lot of help. The rest of the industry, the smaller companies are very collaborative. There's a lot of meetups and, re, and, you know, and events, and people share their successes and failures, and there uh, are a bunch of uh, industry groups. Uh, and I definitely get a lot of questions and try to help uh, wherever I can. Um, and, you know, it's, um, it still feels like a, kind of a new industry in Israel, despite the fact that it's been around now for, you know, more than 10 years, very successful. But it still feels new. It still feels like a bit of outsiders. You know, it's like uh, we don't mix that much with the heavy tech people. I mean, I, I invest in everything, but, you know, the, the game people don't mix that much with the heavy tech people. Um, and I think that we're kind of enjoying right now the fact that, uh, at least on the B2C side, because of the ma ma major success and because people are starting to understand what a complex, complex task it is to build a successful game company, we're seeing more and more uh, people that are saying about learning from the game industry mm -hmm. into other industries, which I think is the smartest. I mean, for years now, I've been uh, asking my game CEOs as a favor to send them CEOs of, uh, of other non-games B2C companies for a day or two and the, you know the CEOs come with their head twisted, you know, swirling, and they're like, uh, you know, we do two tests a week or a month, and we thought that's okay. These guys are doing two tests an hour. I mean, how can they even live? We have, you know, we have ten data points on the customer every month. They have the ten data points on the customer every every five minutes. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I am trying to leverage that. Um, and uh, the industry is in a good place, and so people are helping each other. Yeah, yeah, it's especially with yeah, I, I understand. So industry is in a good place, but let's talk about there's a lot of a lot of people 
from outside Helsinki and outside uh, Tel Aviv listening. And they like what has gone right in terms of uh, the evolution of ecosystem and what we're sort of challenging because a lot of other ecosystems or clusters, however you want to put it, are maybe a decade away where Tel Aviv and, and, um, and Helsinki yep. are now. So in your experience, like what are the sort of certain things to watch for and what are the certain things to double down on? Yeah, so, you know, I'll go back to something that I think we spoke about in the previous podcast, which is, uh, you know, we can characterize right now games into creative-led games and, um, and data and kind of optimization, monetization-led games. And clearly all games, if, if people didn't hear it before, every game has both. But you definitely can see that our companies where what's leading is the creative and the game design. Um, and then they usually are not as good on monetization. They're not as good on optimization and they need to add that with time. And then on the other hand, you see companies that come from data, come from optimization, come from monetization, where in a way the data almost dictates the direction of the product, right? And, and you know, when you look at, you know, you want to give examples. So, you know, Supercell would be a, an easy example of a creative led company. Again, from what I can see from the outside and from knowing Ilka and the guys, and on the other hand, um, Platica would be a very much numbers data-driven company. Um, and it's always kind of funny because when, you know, when, I, when I talk to some senior people in, in Supercell, I can tell them if we bring the top, um, the top data people from Platica into your company, they could double uh, your revenues and profit, which is probably true. But then I, when I talk to the Platica people, I tell them if I bring the top creative people from Supercell into your company, on top of everything great that you're doing with data and optimization, we can probably double that company as well, right? So it's a, you know that's the beauty of a game. It's a mixture of science and art. It's a mixture of um, of creative and data. Um, Israel is has made a tremendous progress and it's probably the leading place in the world by far, from my perspective, on uh, on the data driven optimization and monetization of games. There are, there's no other company in the world that I'm aware of, clearly not the large ones, but even kind of, you know, the rising stars that is as good at looking at data, optimizing it, um, running algorithms on it, deciding how to personalize, deciding how to, what to offer, deciding when to do it, deciding how to do it uh, compared to the Israeli games companies. Nothing even comes close to that. And, um, and this has been the stronghold of Israeli game industry. And why, by the way, it also attracted a lot more capital, I think, in recent years than many other game industries, simply because it is easier to count on something that is the science part of it, right? It's tough sometimes to invest in, in creative, it's easier to invest in the science. Um, on the other hand, maybe the area where Israel didn't yet make the full quantum leap is on having the creative side of it catch up with the same skills. And so when we look at, and, and clearly I'm, I'm now slightly exaggerating and to make my point, you know, when you look at a company like Plarium, um, you know, where Raid is now their biggest game, that is a very creative, heavy game, right? That's a phenomenal game that I love. Um, Jelly Button is pretty creative as well. Exactly. And so, you know, so there are, there are elements, but in general, if I needed to rank, I'd say that uh, the game industry sucked a lot of the talent when it comes to machine learning, data mining, uh, optimization. Um, and we have some of the best people in Israel sitting in the game companies in this. And then on the other hand, um, because we don't have a strong creative agency industry in Israel, you know, we, we don't do television for the rest of the world. We don't do movies for the rest of the world. Um, I think that a creative bit 
still has room for improvement. I always said that if we, uh, you know, if we took the Helsinki ecosystem, which is creative driven and the, you know, the Israel ecosystem and we merged it, we would have taken over the entire industry. Uh, <laughs> or maybe it would have blown up and there would be nothing. I don't know, one of the two. Uh, so the creative element is one thing. And the outcome of this is that the genres that have evolved in Israel are usually, uh, the genres that were very successful in Israel are the genres that are usually less creative heavy. I mean, I mean I'm, I'm not undermining them in any way. They're, they're entertaining billions of people around the world. You know, Moon Active is entertaining, you know, tens of millions of people a day. It, it's great. But in general, when you look at the, at the areas, it, you know, we're strong on casual, we're strong on hyper casual, we're strong on social casino, we're strong or strongish on midcore. But we don't really have any AAA company. Yeah. We don't really have any indie strong console company. Okay. We don't have any strong VR. You know, if you look at the future, VR gaming company. Um, because these areas are usually more creative-led. And so that, that's an area that the industry has not evolved. Yeah. Um, and, and that's probably why, why Israel is, especially when you think about the most successful companies, they have a strong social casino portfolio. And that's probably the reason. Because, you know, well, you know, but but people might not know that social the, the casino is not it's it's illegal in in uh, in Israel. Yeah, we so, don't we don't have gambling in Israel. Yeah, so it is really weird that the best casino and gambling companies come from a place that yeah, don't even have. I'm, a... I'm I'm not I'm not even sure it's that weird because I think Israelis are very good to identify opportunities and jump at them. And so when um, you know the casino started in Israel with eighty eight and uh, and Playtech. With you know some very quick founders that that identified the trend and jumped on. I don't think they were the first in the world, but they were amongst the first in the world, and and they jumped on the trend and delivered huge value quickly. Um, and then I think that social casino was sort of an off you know an offspring of that. So we had people that knew slot machines, we had people that knew what are the monetization elements and so on more than in other countries because of that these companies. And so that's how social casino started. But you know, and I, I think it's also fair to say that you know. Uh, Playtica right now is probably half social casino when you look at it, yeah. you know, with all the acquisitions and all the new things. Plarium is zero social casino, right? Strategy. It's, uh, it's strategy strategy and RPG and a little bit of casual. Um, Moon Active, yeah, you know, the, the number one game has um, has like one third of the game is, uh, is uh, luck-based. It's, uh, it's a slot. But basically the unique thing in it is mostly uh, the social interaction and, uh, and the meta game around mm -hmm. it. Um, and so I, I don't think that social casino is the main driver here, but clearly it's uh, it's overweight in Israel compared to you know compared to the weight of social casino in the world. Yeah, and if you consider Helsinki, for example, Finland overall, we have totally legal gambling. You can find slot machines in every store. It's totally normal. Nobody's going crazy about them because it's a, it's just a it's like a toilet, and. Um, we actually have two, I mean, it's, it's as normal, but we have two uh, social casino companies actually with a physical presence as well as web-based, but they're governmental owned. And there's no startups that were making casino games, even though we have a, a lot of casino publishers, a lot of slot machine experts, a lot of poker, like all these experts exist, yet nobody is doing anything uh, worldwide. So, so that's, a, that's why I said it was kind of interesting. Like we have the capabilities yet, yet Israel is the one that is actually succeeding in social casino. So yep. before I let you go, kind of like the last question would be is like, how do you see the gaming ecosystem continue to evolve in Israel? Like what is the, uh, what is the path? More data driven 
Are you going to have creatives that are going to explode yep. the whole the whole market? So I think that um, there's going to be a bunch of things that are going to happen. The first thing that's going to happen is that um, the data-driven approach is going to continue driving growth and success. I think that um, that's basically, you know, like uh, if, you know, if you say that Mark Andreessen said that software is eating the world, I think that data is eating the game industry. And I think that those that are left behind, you know, we're going to see less and less companies that succeed uh, despite not being deep on their data, that succeed despite not having the best optimization. That, that's going to be, there will be companies like, there's always going to be somebody that's going to be so creative that it's going to work, but these are going to be less and less and far, farther and farther apart. That, and so Israel, you know, based on this building block of, of data, I think that Israel is going to continue to thrive and we're going to continue seeing companies like that grow. That's one thing. Second thing is that we're going to see these companies continue acquiring companies in a crazy pace. And the reason is that once you have the infrastructure for that, then you look at other people's games and you see the money on the floor, right? So you look at games that don't monetize well or are not balanced well or are not using data correctly. And you're like, okay, they're making 100,000 a day, but I can easily see $300,000 a day without spending more money. They're just not doing everything I know should be done. And so that's why Playtica acquired so many companies and will continue acquiring. And I think that the other companies in the field will, will, will start acquiring companies. And uh, so that's the second thing. So, and many of these are gonna be outside of Israel, which means that the Israeli game companies are gonna become like you know, octopus with lots of, you know, lots of arms in many places. And then the last thing is that I think that um, with time and on the same strong basis of, uh, of data, uh, all the CEOs of all the companies want to move and open their realm more um, to more creative-led games. I don't think we're going to see uh, Playtica or any of the other companies that are data-driven, data-based, um, kind of give away the data element and the optimization element and say, let's just build creative games. I don't think that's going to happen. These projects will just die because they're so different from the company DNA. But I do see and start hearing that there's a lot more intention um, to develop these kind of games in Israel or elsewhere based on the same infrastructure. And I think if, if anybody's listening and they have a great idea for a game, um, you know, these are good times to talk to the strong Israeli companies and ask them if they want to develop them together because it's, uh, you know, if you've got very creative, uh, the Israeli companies can make it very successful. So I think that's the way it's going to evolve. I think on that note, on that note uh, thank you, Gigi, so much for, for coming in again on the podcast. And as always, we'll have you anytime, whatever topic you want to talk about. <laughs> uh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me.